I'm Tom from the Ballpark Bros. Here's Mike. This next presentation on the Four-Eyed Radio Network is brought to you by Revenge Lover. Stand out from the crowd. For more information, visit revengelover.com and mention the podcast for 10% off on your order. Hello, this is Steve. And this is Eric. And you're listening to the Crichton Cast. I'm declaring a state of emergency. All personnel restricted to base. Everything seen and heard in that room is top secret. Yes, sir. He didn't tell you what's inside the sphere, did he? You didn't tell him, did you? You didn't tell him what's inside the sphere. And how would you know that, Beth? I am not a warrior. Very soon, you will be. We're going to the jungle. Amy wants green drop drink. No. Amy wants green drop drink. All right, all right. Where they were married. God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man destroys God. Man creates dinosaurs. Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. Welcome back to another episode. This time, let's take you to Africa in the wild Congo. Let's go to the jungle. Hey, there you go. I like that one too, Eric. All right. Welcome so, to the jungle. Uh, no, that's not it. Welcome to the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, I, I did not realize how huge the uh, time span was between novel and movie. And it's not even the longest time span of uh, all of his movie adaptations that Michael Crichton had. But today we're going to talk about Congo, the 1980 book and the 1990, was it 5 or 96 movie? Uh, 95. 95 and the 1995 uh, film adaptation. Um, what is your first thought, Eric? <laughs> um, right off the bat, this is, um, well, I'll tell you a little a little background on this one. This was okay. the last Michael Crichton book that I read um, when I was going through his collection. After after having experienced Jurassic Park, the film, and getting interested in Crichton's work, obviously reading Jurassic Park and then going back and, and rereading other things, um, I had not gotten to Congo by the time the movie came out. So I saw the movie first, Oh, and it completely made me not want to have any interest in reading the book. So I read <laughs> everything else that had been that he had put out at that point before finally getting around to Congo and it was more of a just I, I sometimes get this kind of completist thing going on where I just where I've I'm like I've read everything of his except this. Well, okay, I'm gonna read this. Yes, I did not enjoy the movie, but uh, I'll, I'll give the book a chance. The book's great. <laughs> I'm like, dang, why did I put this off so long? <laughs> right? Yes. Um, the book is, this is another example of uh, the book far outshining the film, in my opinion. I would completely agree. And this is one of the ones um, where I, I kind of had a little bit of hope. If if you've listened to our Disclosure episode, you know that um, with Disclosure, watching it the second time around, I truly enjoyed the movie so much more than I did the first time I'd seen it. And I thought maybe Congo, it's been a decade, a dozen years since I've seen the movie last. Maybe it'll be a little different. And there were enjoyable characters and parts, but on a whole, 
it's still one of my bottom movies as far as it's concerned. And the, and the thing that really threw me, so I, I read the book first and then the movie, so I was opposite of what you did. But what threw me so much was um, the laser. <laughs> like, but but yes. when but reading the book and listening to the audiobook and then watching the movie back to back to back like we've done in the last two weeks now, um, I didn't realize just how different this is a totally different movie five minutes into it when the main characters are so completely changed in how they react and karen ross specifically um yeah. her motive for going to the congo is so a hundred percent different that it lo- it just lost all of the excitement for it yeah it's it's they completely changed that's what i was about to say there the motivations behind everybody's actions are completely different and they change and it's it's unnecessary to change because the technology that they're talking about yes it was you know 15 years between book and movie but it would have been an easier translation i think because the the predictions made in the book as far as when all this technology uh, advancement was going to happen it hasn't. So, and it hadn't as of 1995. You know, we're still using uh, microprocessors. Yes, they've gotten smaller and smaller, but we're still using microprocessors. There's no magic diamond processor out there yet that's uh, taken the world by storm. So, no. they could have used the original story with only slight tweaks. And instead, they make this absolutely ridiculous. So in the in the book, and you know, for those of you who haven't listened to the show before, be warned: we do spoil the storylines on both of these, uh, both the film and the movie. Uh, both, yes, both the film and the movie. Yes. I always do all that. spoiled. <laughs> we we will we will spoil this. So if you have not read or seen these movies, I highly encourage you to hit pause, go watch the movie or read the book or both, and then come back to to listen to us because otherwise, complain. We're, <laughs> yeah, listen to us complain about listen it. Listen to us like complain. Uh, but in the book, you know, the they're searching for these diamonds and they're special blue diamonds because they have this boron coating on them and they're worthless as gems, they say, because of these quote unquote imperfections as, for, as far as gemstones. But they're perfect for use in microprocessors. In fact, they're so perfect that they can't even be replicated by uh, scientific methods. They, they've tried this doping method to, to create these blue diamonds and it hasn't worked. So they really need to find this natural source of these blue diamonds. And they believe they found it at this location near a volcano in the Congo. Um, So cut to the film, they're still looking for these blue diamonds, but instead of being used for microprocessors and computer technology, it's for this laser gun thing. But is they, it? Well, they're they're trying to claim that it's some kind of communication tool. Yeah. But the only time we see it in use is blowing stuff up. Right. That's what threw me. Like, just tell me it's a military laser. Don't say it's a communications thing. And then blow up the tree behind you and then kill every freaking uh, ape with it type of thing. <laughs> uh, which, I mean, don't get me wrong. Bruce Campbell, I totally forgot he was in this movie. I know, me too. I'm like watching. And, and he's so young in it, too. I'm like looking at him like... Yeah. I, I, I had to do a double take, and I was like, is that Bruce Campbell, or is it just some actor who looks like Bruce Campbell? Um, yeah, so Bruce Campbell is briefly in this film. It's one of the up points of the film. Um, but yeah, so so they jump from using these diamonds in a very, very realistic idea of a setting. They're saying that these boron-coated diamonds, these Type 2B, whatever they are, special diamonds, are exceptionally good at, uh, you know, 
transmitting electricity so they'd be better you know, they'd be able to be used in circuit boards and not create a lot of heat and be able to miniaturize things great that sounds you know it's unlikely but plausible at least sure yeah cut to the movie and now we've got this laser gun where he's got these diamond dust basically that they've you know sifted out of the river in just a little jar and he just shoves this jar into a laser and immediately it's the perfect uh, somehow this magical laser just needs a jar full of diamond dust to operate Uh, not to mention when when we get talking about the end of the movie I've got even more complaints about this laser gun but um, (laughs) so he's got just this jar of Diamond dust that they've sifted, you know, they've they've discovered the source of the diamonds because they've been sifting in the river and, you know, like like pan panning for gold, basically, but in this case for diamonds. So they're they're moving up river to find so far we're we're tracking with the book. That's how they did it in the book as well. They found they found uh, some in the river. So they're following it upstream to find the source. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. OK, right. I'm on track with you now. A jar of diamond dust just shoved into a laser is not going to make a focusing crystal, guys. <laughs> that's that's not how lasers work. <laughs> nobody thinks that. Literally nobody thinks that's how lasers work. No. Um, but it, it, it gets worse when we get to the end of the movie as well. But uh, so besides that, so far in the movie, which we haven't seen much, we're, we're seeing this initial expedition to the Congo by this company – that uh, in the in the book it was E R T S, in the Ertz. movie yep. they changed it. It was uh, T- Travicon or T- yeah, right? TC, Travis. Travicon, Travicon. Yeah, Tra- Travicon because Travis or whatever was the uh, owner guy. Yeah. yeah, another character completely changed between uh, book and movie for no reason that I can think of. No, and that's the sad thing is. Uh, I really want to say every character, like Monroe is probably the closest to his character in his book, but the character in his book is just so much better. Uh, the rest of them, it, like you said, they, they're going at this for completely different reasons. And in the book, you know, you really feel like with Karen Ross and with Peter Elliott that this is all about the greed of humanity and how you think you're doing something better but then when it really comes down to it like i loved in peter elliott's character when he all of a sudden is discovering this brand new gorilla this brand new ape and um he's thinking about how famous he could be and stuff like that you know it just and it's a character trait that's just not in the movie at all yeah you, you don't get that he doesn't care at all um and that doesn't make sense he's a primatologist yes he cares about this one particular gorilla that he's you know been caring for for her entire life um <clears throat> but <clears throat> yeah they they make so many radical changes to these characters that were completely unnecessary let's talk about let's talk about Karen Ross for a minute here okay the in the book She's described as a, a young woman who is absolutely brilliant, especially at mathematics. She is a, a uh, savant at, at mathematics. She started figuring out calculus at a very early age. She's started getting into computer programming with it, and so she's advanced very quickly within this company. However, she's still a woman, and she's still young, and because she's you know focused on her her career and her job and what she does she doesn't socialize very much so she's you know kind of labeled as standoffish mm-hmm. um i'm i'm sure that you know the the talk around the water cooler would probably you know be a little bit more direct than than saying she's standoffish but that's the portrayal we get and she is 
very much interested in going on this expedition to prove herself. Um, I, I believe in the book they say that she's been on one or two field assignments, but they were very small field assignments that were not very either not very far away or not very difficult terrain. They, they talk about the the levels of difficulty of the terrain that they're going on and the the things that she's been out on before have been much more easy. And now she's really, really wanted to go out and prove herself on this mission. It's very, very hard terrain in the Congo, and everybody's telling her, no, 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 you're you're too young, you're just a console hot dogger, they call her, because she's a computer programmer. Right. She's a female and a young and a programmer. She shouldn't be out in the field, and she just wants to prove herself, which is a great... Um, which is a great way to start a character's entire story arc. You know, when they have something to prove, then you know exactly what their mission and plan is, is to prove themselves, hey, I can do this just like the rest of you type of thing. Exactly. And you really get that sense from her. You get that sense that she's she's very smart. And yes, she is standoffish, but it, it comes from a place of most people aren't on her level. So she's not going to, to spend a whole <laughs> lot of time talking to them unless right. I, unless it's uh, work-related. But she doesn't come off as being mean or uh, vindictive in any way. She just she, She's really focused on her job, and she wants to get this done. Mm-hmm. Then cut to movie Karen Ross, played by Laura Linney. And uh, I think I think uh, Lenny does a great job with what she's given in this film. I'm not going to disparage her acting. The character, however, that she is given, not so great. You know, no. first off, they they automatically say they they throw most of her character out the window and with one line saying, "Oh, you did such a good job on this other expedition over here." Oh, so she has been out in the field in a hard assignment, and in fact, it's Travis's choice to send her. Immediately. Yeah. He, she doesn't have to talk him into it. She had to talk him into it in the book. And even then, he was still, I don't know about this. But he, she manages to talk him into it. In the movie, he's like, go. Just, she almost just didn't go. want to in the yeah. movie. Yeah, she's like worried, like, oh, can we do this? But she, she wanted to go because she wanted to save the guy. She yep. was hoping that maybe he wasn't dead because they saw all these other bodies in the camp. That's the part that they did keep fairly true between book and movie is that uh, they have this expedition that's already in the Congo. They're setting up a satellite link up. They've got this video link. They're they're talking. They're they're having, you know, they're communicating with each other and then suddenly nothing. Nobody's there. And so they remotely pan the camera around and find all these bodies that have had their skulls crushed. Um in the book, uh, there's uh, a tool involved with the skull crushing, which added a whole nother element, I feel, to these gorilla characters that they completely left out of the movie. Yeah, because um, then they had tools in their training, and they well, just wasn't there at all. And, and the other thing was, well, well, we'll get to the we'll get to the gorillas in a second. I, I do want to talk specifically about those these gray gorillas, but um, Karen Ross, you know, so she's she's looking. And she sees this entire campsite, but the one guy, the Bruce Campbell's character, is not a visible on camera. They don't see him. So there's this possibility that he's still alive. Right. And they also know that he's found at least some of these diamonds. He thinks he's found the source. In the in the movie, they show him saying, we found it. Whereas in the in the book, they just, they know they found that they were on the right track, but they hadn't yet found them. Um, so you get this entirely different uh, scenario where now she's like, well, I'm going to go there and try to save him. And Travis, um, who for this character, for the character as written for the movie, they got a great actor to play him. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, Joe Don Baker, who uh, totally did a great job. Pe- yes, pe- people like me know as uh, <laughs> as the the annoying American uh, CIA guy from uh, Goldeneye. Goldeneye, uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, plays plays R.B. Travis in this film, and it's a completely different character than the book. He would have been a horrible choice for the Travis of the book, I think. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> the way they wrote this character is this big, blustering CEO who just wants to get the job done at all costs. And in fact, in the movie, sends three expeditions essentially to their deaths to try to find these diamonds. Um, and then I don't know if there's a cut scene somewhere that didn't make it into the movie that that establishes more of this but there's this scene near the beginning between Ross's the Karen Ross and Travis where she tells him if I think for just one second that you're sending me there just for the diamond and not to get him I'm going to make you sorry and it's like we've seen nothing up to this point that leads us to believe that that's his only mission you know right. he obviously cares about it that's that's why they went there in the first place. But we've seen nothing to indicate. You know, is, is there some sort of character development for these these two that got cut? Are we just supposed to assume it from that one line? Like, what's going on here? And then we don't see anything related to that at all again until the very end. Yeah. So, so the like, last few minutes, I was waiting for some other argument thing, and not a single dang yeah, thing. Yeah. It's like, okay, we, we got this right here, and we're like, what? What did he say? Did I miss something? And then the very end, we, you know, which we'll get to. So this is what I'm saying. We've got completely, completely different characters going on this expedition for completely separate reasons and motivations. Uh, right. Movie Karen Ross is going to save her. Do they indicate that they were dating or a couple in any way, or just were they just friends? Well, Karen Ross and. Um, um... The Bruce Campbell character. Which yeah, no, they was... were engaged. Engaged. At one point. Okay, yes. I, yeah. I, I, Again, it was ex-fiance, <laughs> is how she uh, said it. Uh, told uh, Peter Elliott's character, Dylan Walsh. Yeah, was ex-fiance. Ex-fiance. Okay, so they're mm-hmm. still friends, still, um, you know, amiable, obviously, because they're 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 working together, but. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's and and again with the character development in this movie, I wasn't one hundred percent sure. <laughs> no, and, and I I will say what I really really didn't like about Karen Ross in the movie was she just seemed she was too much of a nice goody two shoes. Like she still cared about her ex fiance this much and all the uh, I I couldn't get into that, but she definitely. Up until the very end, at least I should say, had the coolness factor of all the techie gear, um, just like in the book. Yes, she did have the, um, which would have been even better, I think, if they had used some of the. There's a whole feature in the book that when you know after this camp is destroyed and they have this video of a brief moment of this gray gorilla attacking the video and they have to do some some work on the video and I can understand why they cut all of her techno photoshopping stuff out of the the movie for time i get that <clears throat> but they completely leave out as far as I, I i don't recall them ever mentioning it in the movie they completely leave out that these uh, gray gorillas are talking to each other they talk about yep. it in the book very detailed like we hear this whispering sound and i wonder if this whispering sound is more than just noise and it plays a big part later on in the in the book and they completely cut that out of the movie. Just doesn't exist. Which, again, brings me to another point that I hate about the movie is how they changed these gray gorillas. Um, the the difference, they they basically, in the movie, made them into monsters. 
they're just these these rampaging monsters who look hideous. They're just just weird, deformed, sharp, fangy teeth. Um, just vicious killers that uh, that are are out for for nothing but blood. Yeah. In the book, they're yes, they kill, but we find out that they've been trained to. That's that was their job. They were trained to be guards for this diamond mine, and they were they do it because that's what they think they're supposed to do. But their appearance is basically similar to a normal gorilla, except they're gray, as opposed to being black or dark brown with just some gray or white on the back. They are all gray. There's their actual skin under their hair is lighter than a gorilla's. But other than that, they're described in the facial features as looking like a gorilla. Well, and even in the book, they talk about how there's such a family dynamic when they run across the 300 of them they count um, in the daytime. It's yeah. only at nighttime when they actually attack, and it's the males that are doing the attacking. Uh, so, so yeah, it is just this trained, they're defending their territory thing in the book, which makes a ton more sense versus the let's slow down the film a little bit while this one's coming at you. It was just just out for blood. They had nothing to do but wanted to kill people type of thing. Yeah, it was them making these gorillas into monsters. They they wanted a movie monster. And the whole point of the book, I felt, was that these weren't monsters. They were just living. And we were we were the monsters for coming into their territory and trying to, to take what they were, were trained and, and learning to protect. Um <clears throat> We ended up, you know, in the book, the the humans kill way more of these gorillas than the gorillas kill the humans. Yeah. Um, The movie might have a a similar body count as well, especially once the laser gets involved. But but especially counting the volcano in, we – the humans basically wipe these guys out and it's – in, in the movie, it makes it feel justified because they're these monsters that they're going to kill us all if they ever get out. You know, ah, no, that's that's not what 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 Crichton wrote in the novel mm-hmm. at all. Um, and so it's it's that was the biggest disappointment for me between the book and movie was that the way they changed these gorillas, these gray gorillas, um, the characters, the characterization of these things. Um, it's like they just needed a cheap movie monster. Somebody said, make them look mean so that people will hate them and be okay when they get killed. Right. <laughs> and instead, you know, in the book, yeah, you're you're sad when the humans get killed, but you're also sad kind of when the gorillas get killed because you realize that they're not doing anything wrong. They're not doing this to, to provoke. They're not doing this because they, they want to kill per se. They're, they're protecting they're defending. They're doing what they were trained and bred to do, we find out, by these ancient people living in this uh, jungle area. Right. No, and it's – there's just so many differences that really do make the movie a bummer. Um, to continue on talking about the characters and everything, even Peter Elliott um, – he was probably a very similar character in the whole thing, but the fact that they don't talk at all about the language of the gorillas or the fact that this is a whole new species, it it very rarely got mentioned in the movie that this is a whole new species of of gorilla or anything like that. Granted, I did like Peter Elliott's relationship with Amy. Now, the fact that Amy had a computer attached to her so she could talk was a little off, but there is a 15-year gap between movie and 
uh, novel. So I guess technology could change a bit and you could do something like that. And it does allow for, you know, there's a lot in the book of translation between uh, Amy the gorilla signing to Peter and Peter translating for everybody else. This is this is what she's saying. Um, and so for for time, they can cut that, and you know they give her this this technology, and that seems to me something that uh, um, you know I don't know I know uh, Crichton was involved in the production of this. He did not uh, write the screenplay or uh, direct the film, but he was involved in the production. And this seems to be a Crichton thing. I th- this feels just the 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 idea of having this gorilla have this technology. That seems like something Crichton would do. Yeah, because it was a future forward-thinking technology thing that, like, oh, yeah, we could do this. I mean, so it totally felt like a Crichton thing. Like, oh, yeah, that was in the book. No, it wasn't. Just the movie. <laughs> yeah. And and that, that part I did not have a problem with. That change, you know, just giving her the ability to, to have this vocalization, um, <clears throat> the fact that they, they made – they turned that into the selling point to where they totally flip-flopped in the book – they're going on this expedition. The the Earth people are going on this expedition. She thinks that uh, having this primatologist along, or well, actually, she just wants some advice originally, and he jumps all over it. He's like, "Oh, you're going to the con- I'm I'm a, I'm a, I'll come with you," and it's just kind of like, "Well, oh, are, are, okay," <laughs> you know. It's like, "Oh," in the movie, they make it he's going on this expedition, and she has to tag along with him for some reason. Because right. for some reason, somehow, uh, they can't figure out a way to get there on their own. So they have to tag along with his expedition, which, mm-hmm. what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when she's the one with the company that's got all the money. Yeah, um, which also brings us to character from the film that did not appear in the book at all. Herkimer Homoka? <laughs> yes. Yes, Tim Curry. <laughs> Which I'm thinking that's the only explanation. You just said the explanation for this character existing, Tim Curry. I think yeah, it's a matter right. of you, if you, you – Tim Curry makes himself available for your movie. You find a part for him. And mm. there wasn't really a part for Tim Curry in the book. I can't imagine Tim Curry playing any of the characters that we actually saw in the book. So they make this this new character whose closest analog in the book, there is a, I believe, a Japanese character in the book that's briefly mentioned as being like this eccentric billionaire or millionaire who's been searching for this diamond mine also. But he's working with the consortium. The consortium. See, now, now you're talking about a lot of things that are different here, Eric. <laughs> so now you're bringing up a whole lot of difference yeah, we'll, all at once. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to too is. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that consortium business here as well. But uh, that's mm-hmm. the closest analog I could think of in the book for Herkimer's character, is because they are they briefly mention this eccentric, you know, supposed millionaire or billionaire who is also trying to find this place. But in the book, he's barely mentioned because he's not working with with the team that we're seeing the story of. Right. Well, and the only reason that uh, Tim Curry's character is in the movie at all is because you need somebody to explain the Lost City of Zinge, which is explained wonderfully in the book because they talk about Amy's nightmares. And Mm -hmm. it's actually Peter Elliott and his team that find out about this Lost City and are looking into the pictures and comparing the drawings to things. So 
you don't have any of that at all. In fact, you have no reason to believe that Amy's ever even seen The Lost City of Zinge, so you need Tim Curry's character to add into that and to be able to yeah. tell you about this city, which, uh, I don't know, it, 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 it unfortunately had Curry. to be thrown in there um, because you cut these other parts out, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Tim Curry, and like I said, if, if Tim Curry makes himself available for your movie, you, you find him a part, that's what you do. But right. this part... I mean, he he was wonderful, but at the same time, it's like this character was not necessary. <laughs> he really wasn't. And the way they used him to explain the, the city, it came off as way more cheesy than we get in the book. In the book, <laughs> we get these descriptions. You know, one of the big differences, or one of the smaller differences, I should say, is that in the in the movie, Amy's been painting these things that she's supposedly been dreaming about, and there's you know these jungle scapes that she's been finger painting, and they all have this eyeball looking thing in them. Whereas in the book, she's painting these jungle scapes that looked like they have buildings with half moon or crescent openings for the windows. Like there's this very distinctive window pattern, and mm-hmm. that's how they end up finding like, oh well, we found this this you know, what was it, 14th or 15th century painting that somebody had done that depicted this city in the jungle with these crescent windows. And that, to me, makes so much more sense than, oh, this this eyeball she's painting is the eyeball that they're worshipping in this city, and I have this ring that has this eyeball in it, and... Like there's I, eyes everywhere. Like you could, right? She's painting an like, eyeball. She could be dreaming that somebody's staring at her. She could be looking at. She could be dreaming that she's looking at a mirror. I mean, eyeballs are way too common a thing to immediately jump to Lost City of Zinge. Is is, is a Lost City of Zinge the only city in all of civilization that has an open eyeball, or all the rest of them closed eyeballs that were done? Like that's because he made it's an open eye, and well. Okay, who cares? I'm sure there's plenty of those all around the world from civilizations of people watching you an open eye. So, yeah, it was far-fetched. We're we're starting to get into the far-fetched territory here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those changes that I, I didn't understand why they went with the eye. That's, that is, in fact, actually, I believe that is my only question mark change for this one. Uh, okay. Everything else, you know, there's so many changes. You know, there's so <laughs> yeah. many changes between the book and movie, and <laughs> yeah, I question most of them. But this is the only one that I really like. Why this specifically? Why go from these crescents to an eyeball? That's just, it, it doesn't seem necessary. Like, they could have done the exact same story. His ring could have had a crescent shape on it. And, mm-hmm. you know, it could have been, they could have still gone with that. And instead they went with this eyeball thing, which then makes the city completely different because in the book, when you get to the city and you see the the big statue that's in the city, it's a gorilla, not it's some so... person with these yellow eyeballs that they're they're talking about, which I don't right. think looked anything like her painting or his ring. So their whole tenuous connection became even more tenuous when they sh- when they actually found the city. It's like, all right, you found the city, but based on that, you really shouldn't have. Right. (laughs) You just stumbled upon it accidentally. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, so let's let's talk about this uh, consortium business that exists only in the book. Right. So this is what made the book a great adventure because this was a race. This was like, this was this great race going on between Karen Ross's team in Ertz and the consortium because they both need to get these diamonds. They know that this is the future and this is all the money. Uh, there are 
so many ways. So when they need to get Monroe, the two different teams are bidding for him. Yeah, it's all about there is uh, there is. Um, data and they're taking down each other's satellites from communication. You know, there's espionage going on between the teams. Yep. Both teams have to fly in. Oh, what's this? The airplane at the end that crashes is the consortium's team, and that's how they escape. It's not another one of her planes or uh, uh, yep. Travicon's planes that crash. Yeah. Um, but there's so much. But so that's what made the book really, really great was it was this race to the finish, and which is what Karen Ross needed because she needed to prove herself, which means she needs to win the race, and now she has somebody against her in this race. Yeah, and in the movie, they've got this, you know, the only uh, rushing factor, I guess, is the fact that this one guy might still be alive, so she's trying to get to him to help out. But besides the very beginning, before she goes on the mission, it's never mentioned again. The, the time limit is never mentioned again. They're just they're just going, which makes a lot of their choices seem foolish when you think, well, why didn't you, why, why don't you just wait a bit? You know, <laughs> it's like you could just you could just wait a bit and then you wouldn't have to deal with this. Well, in the book, they can't because this consortium, if they get to the site first, they lay claim, they own the diamonds. Ertz loses. Ertz loses and yep. uh, loses a big mm-hmm. fat contract that could uh, you know potentially be a boatload of money for the team or for the company which is pointed out in the film this is the one thing between the two Karen Rosses where I think they got a little bit of similarity is the fact that Karen Ross doesn't really care about the money part of it in the movie, she yep. doesn't care because she's just going there to save her friend, and you know she ends up, you know, tossing the 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 prize, so to speak. Um, in the book, she's like, "Yeah, this contract is worth a bunch of money." I think. I mean, <laughs> you, you, she specifically said, "Is like I actually have no idea how much uh, no the contract idea. is worth. I just know that it's good for me." to find mm-hmm. it and get it for the company. It'll advance my career. It'll advance my status if I find this. Money for the company was a, was a secondary thought at best for both of these Karen Rosses. So that was the the one thing I saw between the two characters that, that seemed to mesh. Right. No, and I would and I would agree, and that's... Now we're talking about similarities, and they're just so few. I mean, at least we kept the names of the characters, I guess. <laughs> so uh, you got Ross, Elliot, Monroe, and uh, Amy. Um, yeah, yeah. You get Travis. They kept Travis. Although, did yeah. they change his first name? Or we don't we don't get his first name in the uh, movie. I think we just no, get initials. No, no, it's so. just yeah, R. B. Travis or something was what it was. Just some initials. So, uh, but to come down to this, so this is a. This isn't even a, like a favorite book of mine of Michael Crichton's, but for sure this movie is really low on the list, which is really sad for you know a movie that came out in the '90s that could be, but there's just you know I mean, we are talking mid '90s. I mean we're throwing uh, movies out there about volcanoes and asteroids hitting the Earth and everything <laughs> else. So I, I, but somehow this was still a top twenty movie in 1995. So. Well, the production value was very good um, for what it was. It, it's just that, like I said, I watched this movie without having read the book, and I still came came off going, "This this doesn't seem right." And then when I read the book, I was like, "Wow, you know, <laughs> that movie was way off." <laughs> <laughs> um, yep. But yeah, it's there's so many things that they changed that I don't think needed to be changed. And then mm-hmm. when they did keep things fairly similar. Um, it didn't. It didn't quite flow 
as well as it did in the books, as it did in the book, I feel. So it's just like, eh. I do want to talk about one good point of the movie, though. Okay. The character of Captain Monroe. Oh. The book, the character was great. The character itself was probably better than the movie's version. However, Ernie Hudson nailed this. He was definitely a bright point in this entire movie. Uh. Anytime he was on screen, at least you weren't too mad. (laughs) Right. He did a fantastic job playing this great white hunter. (laughs) Who it's pointed out, he's like, yes, I'm your great white hunter. I just happen to be black. (laughs) Uh, It was so great. He had so many great lines in this. And every time he was on screen, it was going to be entertaining or at least just it was going to be good. Uh, The other character that I really liked, and he's not even credited in it, is Eddie Ventro, Joe Pantolano, who um, is the guy at the airport who's their equipment guy. That He's the guy in Africa that just gets you whatever it is you need type of thing. And he was a great little side character. But Ernie Hudson did an amazing job. As Monroe, I definitely my favorite character in the movie by far, and a character that um, made the movie for me. You know, Ernie Hudson's character made the movie for me, and then I did like uh, Peter Elliot and Amy's, you know, relationship and stuff as they're having to go, and then even at the end when he's got to let go of her type of thing. You know, I, I liked that dynamic, that relationship, but that was about it. Yeah, they they did a good job, I think, with the Peter Elliot's character in the movie was was. Pretty flat, I felt. He was he was soft. He was flat. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I felt in the book he had a little bit more depth. I think he was still he was still fairly fairly soft character. But at the same time, when push came to sh- you know when he was dealing with the gorillas aspect, when he was dealing with primatology, which is what he did, then you know he came alive a little bit. That never really happened in the movie. It felt, you know, he, he just stayed this this very flat character, which is unfortunate because he was played by Dylan Walsh, who I think is a fantastic actor. I've seen him in several things. He's very good in uh, Nip Tuck. Nip Tuck. That's exactly where I remember. So it's interesting <clears throat> to see him with a big fro in the movie <laughs> compared to his Nip Tuck character. But yes, yeah, he had the had that nineties nineties uh, fro going on. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah, just. Very, very disappointed overall in the characterization of most of the characters in the film, uh, especially compared to the book. But even if you just take it as the film by itself, I never feel that any of these characters get fully developed. You know, we see just bits and pieces and, you know, like with Travis's character specifically, you see him only a couple of times. He basically appears, you know, at the beginning of the movie, one little shot in the middle and then at the very end. And it's like he's two different characters between the first two times you see him and the end. And at the end, we're seeing what I guess we're supposed to have known he was like from the beginning. But that's not what we saw. You right. Know? We saw him as, you know, in the beginning of the movie, he's this CEO. He's definitely he wants to get this contract. He wants to get these diamonds. And he's definitely set on his mission. But he does still seem like he actually cares about the people involved. He looks visibly shaken when they find out that this party's been attacked, he looks even more shaken when he finds when he thinks that uh, Ross's party has been attacked. Mm-hmm. Um, another big change between uh, the movie and the book: they lose communications. Ross's party loses communications with the, the with the Houston team way early, and then they just don't have any communication beyond that. Whereas in At the book, all. their yeah. communication back and forth plays a large part in their figuring out what's going on with these gorillas. <laughs> so I'm like. Wow. They, yeah, they lost communication, and uh, Travis thinks that, oh, another party's been lost. 
Um, and he seems visibly upset by it and he doesn't, and it doesn't seem to me like it's about the diamonds. It seems like he's very upset to have lost Ross in this party. He's like, no, no, I'm mad about it. Um, and then at the end, we're supposed to believe that all he ever cared about was the diamonds and that was it. And it's like, well, we didn't get that impression <laughs> again. Is there a missing no. scene somewhere that we don't know about? Yeah. Um, you know, cause the characterization just seemed to change between those instances. Yeah, and we are definitely talking two very different things between the book and the movie. I mean, they are they just have to be separated because I had forgotten about the fact you're right. Throughout the book, he, on and off, Karen Ross has communication with Ertz the entire time because there's even a point in the very end where she ignores the warning that they need to leave because the volcano is going to erupt. So it, it just it, it solidifies how single track minded her character is. That she doesn't care about anybody's life that's with her. She needs to find these diamonds so she can prove herself. Yeah, and they point that out, and you know they they point out in the book that she's had this uh, psychological profile that they've drawn up. Um, that they know that when it gets to, you know, late stage, nearing the goal, she could, you know, lose track of, of sensibilities and basically just go all out to try to make the goal and maybe make some bad choices. And then right. we see her do exactly that. Um, in fact, we talked about the volcano in the movie. The volcano just erupts, you know, whatever. And in the book, it, they say it's probably going to erupt and it may... It probably was going to erupt, but most likely it wouldn't have necessarily destroyed Zinge. But Ross needed to find out how much, how many diamonds were in that mine. She just <laughs> had to know. So yep. she's going to set a few, a few charges, just a few. Well, don't really have the proper type of charges. I'm supposed to use uh, seismic charges for this, but. Uh, all I have are these standard explosives, so I'm just going to shove these in a mine at the base of a volcano. <laughs> I like your description of this, of her thought process. <laughs> she, and Monroe, she, Monroe knows in the book exactly what's going to happen. He's experienced this before. He knows what these uh, seismic charges are, whatever it is, the cone-shaped charges. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I, they, they point out that she's supposed to use a specific type of charge that's much smaller, much more focused just to do this. But she doesn't have that. All she has are these bigger, more explosive charges that are specifically designed to crack stuff open. Mm-hmm. And there they are at the base of an already trying to erupt volcano, and she's setting these charges off, which immediately yeah. speeds up the volcano's eruption. And I would say, focus it, you know, it creates an opening for this magma to come through, and now they've destroyed their city. <laughs> Whereas they pointed out that this volcano has erupted many, many times and not damaged the city because that's just not where. The, the, the lava, lava flows or whatever, yeah, yeah. But now it does. It buries it under mm-hmm. half a mile, they say at the end of the book, of rock because, I think, she chose to set these things off. Right. So you get this this character and you, you, you know throughout the movie that she's – or throughout the book that she's focused on this goal. And then you find out just how focused when it comes down to it, when they, when they get to the end and she will just do anything and ignore everybody to just try to meet her goal. Mm-hmm. And that's and that is her character. And then at the end, um, they barely escape with their lives. And it's only by chance. I mean, they honestly should have all died, but it's only by chance that they realize that there is a hot air balloon that they can escape on. Yes. In the movie, this balloon is mentioned several times 
in yes. the beginning about how they, oh, we don't need that balloon. They, they cut the balloon uh, from their original stuff that they take with them. But yep. then they find out that this second or, th- or technically third Ertz <laughs> expedition still had their balloon and uh, they escape in it. In the book, they find this uh, consortium plane that had been shot down and they realize, hey, they had a balloon on board. I'm like, hey, that's uh, smart thinking there. And that's how they, they get out. I also I love the fact that in the book, they they leave completely empty handed with the exception of uh, Monroe. <laughs> Yes. Monroe manages to get out there, get out with a pocket full of uh, rough diamonds that he's able to sell to Intel later on. Um, mm-hmm. Make a little bit of make a little bit of money off of that. But everybody else leaves empty handed. Uh, Elliot does not get he wanted originally a skeleton of these new gorillas. And then he was like, actually, you know what? I want one of their brains. I want to freeze one of their brains. I, if I can get a whole body back, you know, he's he's thinking about his fame and fortune for finding this new species. And he ends up with nothing. I mean, Not so little or nothing that he can't even tell the story because there's no proof left because all of these gorillas got covered in lava. So yeah, now, gone. Yeah, they they extincted this species in this book. They they killed them. Um, yeah, so they leave like less than empty-handed. It seems basically, like I said, with the exception of Monroe, who manages to to make a few bucks on the side, but that's about it. In the movie. They also leave mostly empty-handed, and then they empty their own hand. Then <laughs> they pull a Titanic for no yeah, right, yeah. Then <laughs> Karen Ross's Ooh. goody two-shoes decides, yeah. Let's let's talk about this diamond for a second. Uh, that's a huge ass diamond, by the way. That's a huge ass, uh, perfectly cut and faceted diamond, isn't that it? Was somehow, yeah. that, that was somehow just covered in a little bit of dirt that she shook <laughs> off. And hey, look, this perfect diamond, and it fits perfectly into the laser. Amazing. Yep. I'm like, I'll give. <laughs> I will give that. Yeah, like yeah. She what she do? She had to. Um, break it against a rock or whatever or something. <laughs> but all the diamonds that are laying around that Tim Curry's picking up are so perfect. Like right from a jewelry store, nicely cut diamonds. That was so awful. Like and I think even when I originally watched the movie, this was the point where it completely got lost on me. Yeah, it was so ridiculous. I mean they walk into this like little cave area that's sandy for some reason and just laying in the sand all around are all these perfect diamonds which are obviously cut. They're obviously not rough diamonds. He's picking them all up, putting them in his pocket. He's getting, okay, that's fine, whatever. And in the book, they describe this very, very rich diamond mine, like so much richer than any other diamond mine. Like they're just everywhere. But they at least describe them as being in the rough state. You know, they're still the way they would be in a mine. There's just a whole lot more of them um, that they describe as they would have been ignored by the 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 previous people who operated this mine because they had no value as gemstones. I don't know if I buy that, but moving on from that, at least it was a little bit more realistic. Right. In this, there's just, I mean, it, it's like this little sandy area where somebody has just strewn a few diamonds. <laughs> That's what it looks like. Like, let's just toss the diamonds around. And even the sand was so perfectly, like, brushed, you know? Yeah. And, Very unrealistic. And Very then unrealistic. she does find the one diamond that she ends up using, which Somehow that one diamond is encased in some some other rock, clutched in the hand of uh, dead Bruce Campbell. <laughs> Sorry, but she yeah she breaks it open and then she's got this perfectly cut diamond in her hand that somehow also 
fits perfectly into the space in this communications laser that they've been trying to develop, which we heard nothing about other than the very beginning and the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, you get that one, that great little quip from her as she's mowing down gorillas with this laser. It's the latest thing in communications. Oh. Wait, <laughs> is it? Because that seems like a military application right there. <laughs> is is that really the latest in uh, communications? Oh, That's that was man. so far fetched. Yeah, oh, it was, my it was gosh, so yeah. utterly ridiculous, and it just—I mean—it just totally went off the rails at that point. And and I'm I'm just. You you have to laugh because it's so ridiculous. And then they're up in the hot air balloon escaping, and she's got this diamond, and she's mad at Travis because when she called him to tell him they found the party and that everybody was dead, he's like, did you get the diamonds? <laughs> like, all of a sudden, we're seeing this character that I guess we're supposed to have known he was all along. And mm. she's like, you remember what I told you? I'm like, we all remember. It was less than two hours ago. Why, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Um, <laughs> and so they're floating away in the balloon, and she pulls a Titanic with this this one. Di- they went to go find this source of diamonds. They find the one diamond, which evidently is all they needed in the movie. They just needed the one diamond to power the one laser. They weren't looking for a source of them. They just needed the one specific one, I guess. I guess for the future of communications. Hey, that's <laughs> it's just so not explained at all what they're really doing. I mean, I I I know. Uh, John Patrick Stanley was the guy who did the screenplay, which he's also the guy that did, um, oh, what's the Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan volcano movie? Um, he wrote and uh, directed it. Like um, <laughs> Joe versus the volcano? No. Yes, that's... Joe versus the volcano. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So like, so that's the only other big thing that I know this guy from. Like, he hasn't done much at all, but he wrote and directed that movie. Well, he also did the screenplay for this, and I feel like he was trying to create like this love romance type thing which i will give this movie great credit for the fact that the end scene with the um hot air balloon going away and the music was very awesome like not near as amazing as jurassic park's helicopter and its soundtrack but still was very beautiful you know that little end scene there i'll give them that the music at the very beginning at the very end in fact the beginning uh music there's a little clip of that in our intro to our podcast so yeah, definitely, um, definitely a decent score on the film. Uh, you know, we can we can give it that, <laughs> but not much else. Um, yeah, there's just so much, so much difference, and not in a good way. I felt they there were things they could have cut to for time from the book. Obviously, they have to to make a movie. We, we get that, but the stuff they chose to cut doesn't necessarily make sense. You know, no. I think the the whole consortium storyline. That should have been there. There, there should have been something there, that uh, you know, to drive the timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't have to do every single scene with the consortium from the from from the book. I mean, we can skip the negotiations for from Monroe. I suppose we can get, get rid of that. A couple of the, um, you know, when they had trouble at the airport, like two of their party weren't able to to go on the expedition because they were caught at the airport with possible narcotics or something like that because of a false positive from a machine that was uh, built by the people running the consortium. I thought that was a, an interesting little side bit, but ultimately cuttable for for a film version. Um, right. But they, they cut too much and added things that didn't need to be added, you know, and the, the change in the characters is what really strikes me, and not just the human characters, too. I think the only character... Honestly, the only character that I felt was fairly true to the book was Amy. 
Yeah, because I, I uh, well, I mean, except for the fact in the book, she actually does smoke cigarettes where, um, y- you know, she just steals one of uh, Monroe's cigarettes or whatever to try and act like him. But otherwise, yes, you are correct. She she gets her green drop drink, and the way she speaks is very much how she's written as speaking, you know, with the, the smaller amount of words and stuff like that. Yeah, there's there's a lot more explanation in the book about how she she speaks and the way that uh, Peter not only has to translate the the words that she's actually signing, but then the meaning behind them because she doesn't always know the right words or understand the right words. So she's using combinations of other words to you know when they figure out like I love the explanation when they figure out that she's having bad dreams. You know, she says sleep box. And they're like, "What do you mean, sleep box? Are you talking about your bed? You don't you, you don't sleep in a box. You have like a nest area that you you build for yourself and you sleep in. So that's not it." And then they realize that you know she talks about the TV being a box, and so she's she's watching the TV. She's watching the box, and they're so they think, "Oh, maybe she's turning the TV on at night and it's disturbing her sleep." So, but then they realize you know over time and working with her that she's talking about she's seeing images in her mind while she's sleeping that she assumes are like TV images so she's putting these things together and they have to work that out like oh she's having bad dreams mm-hmm. and uh, you know yeah you don't necessarily have time for all of that explanation in a movie but that really helps to solidify like how these characters are interacting with each other so i you know it's one of those things but yeah i think the character you know the way they they did Amy's character, I thought, was probably the truest to the book of any of the other characters. Because it certainly wasn't Ross. It definitely wasn't the Grey Gorillas, you know? No. Even Elliot, was, who was closer than Ross as far as, uh, you know, book-to-movie translation, but still nowhere near. Still far off, yeah. Uh, Monroe would probably be, you know, maybe next on the list, but still... Not the same, you know. Great in his own right, mostly because of Ernie Hudson. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the character oh, himself, maybe not so great, but Hudson just nailed it. Like that was just fantastic. And I believe he's been on record as saying that this was one of his favorite parts to ever play. So that's awesome. That yeah. is awesome. Yeah, because yeah. he did do such an amazing job. So I'm glad that it's one of his favorite parts he ever played. So I will in say this there case, was I... one character in the movie that did not appear in the book who I really enjoyed. And I'm trying to, I cannot remember the name of the actor. I've seen him in a ton of stuff. He played like the, he played like the military, the African military guy. Oh, yes. His interaction um, with Tim Curry's character in the movie. So great. When he had the Stop rice cakes. eating my sesame Stop. cakes. Stop eating my sesame cakes. <laughs> and he makes Tim Curry spit out the bite. Or he doesn't make him, but Tim Curry spits out the bite. Yeah. He like, tells him, sit down, have some scene. cake. And they're like, no, 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 have some cake. Oh, okay. So he starts eating the cake. Stop eating my sesame cake. (laughs) (laughs) Stop eating my sesame cake. (laughs) Fantastic. Um, Oh, God. Yeah, Yeah, I forgot about that. Totally doesn't appear in the the book at all, but it was a fun little aside. This is when they were, you know, negotiating passage through through Africa. Um, You know, it's one of the things that they changed. They, They cut a whole bunch of other stuff and instead put this scene in, basically. But that I'm okay with because that interaction was just fantastic. No, it totally was. And and I feel like that was very much written so Tim Curry could react to it because he was great in that because he's Tim Curry, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was it was very good. The there's just so much to say about this book that 
you definitely shouldn't even bother with the movie. I will give the movie one little credit. There was the cool little 1990s throwback in the opening scene of when we meet Amy. Uh, for some reason, the computer is playing Doom in the background. Um, <laughs> I, I noticed that. I was like, oh, I used to, I remember playing Doom. Yeah, back in the day, the original. Um, oh, yeah. But there's, there's just – there is – so much um this is a novel that was written very much michael crichton it's got your scientific explanations of things and your descriptions of things that you like you feel like this is so true in fact which the whole amy gorilla thing was that gorilla's name was yeah. coco back in the 70s you know the new sign language and and everything like that so um so it is a good book but i definitely wouldn't even bother with the movie i don't know i don't want to say that though because i loved ernie hudson's character like i just i just need ernie hudson's parts in a youtube video somewhere somebody must have yeah, done somebody, that just somebody give ernie us hudson. A, yeah. ernie hudson give us a captain monroe supercut of uh congo of congo um because that would give us the the scene uh that i was talking about it was uh, delroy lindo was the the actor that's it yes that's his name yes. like i know i've seen him in a ton of stuff he was a played captain wanta um, evidently uncredited for some reason. I had to do some digging to find out for See, some reason. That's interesting because Joe Pantoliano was uncredited to him. Like, there's a lot of decently, uh, I guess nowadays decently sized names. Like, I, I know uh, Delroy Lindo most from Gone in 60 Seconds, but um, but yeah, that they just were uncredited or just had smaller parts in it. Uh, he was so great. That was yeah. a great scene, though. Yes, <laughs> my my sesame cake. <laughs> Stop eating my sesame cake. <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I'd love to see a, a supercut of anything with Monroe in it. Uh, somebody, somebody, get on that and send it to us. Uh, yes, you can, please. You can you can send us the link at any of our communication devices that we have available. We are on Twitter at CrichtonCast. We have the website CrichtonCast.com. You can find us on Facebook slash CrichtonCast. Um, you can email info at CrichtonCast.com or just go to CrichtonCast.com and click on the contact page. Um, yeah, let us know what you thought. If you if you think we're giving the movie uh, too much too much trouble, feel free to let us know what you thought was good about it. If you think we're not giving the movie enough trouble, feel free to tell <laughs> us what we forgot to complain about. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, most definitely, uh, because this is what the podcast is about. We want to contact. Uh, we want contact with other fans of Michael Crichton or haters of his movies, and that is okay. <laughs> like I, I do feel like Congo. Like this is one of those ones where I like I gotta push through it type of thing. And thank God it was only two hours of my life, or hour and a half, or whatever it was with the movie. Um, you know, I, I hope this isn't its way with some of the rest of them we're doing. Uh, but yes, please contact us and reach out to us. Uh, you can call and leave a voicemail at 802 Jurassic or all of the ways uh, that Eric just explained. And if you do a supercut, we will definitely be sharing the crap out of that because Absolutely. that would be amazing if somebody would take the time to do that for us of uh, Captain Monroe. Um, I really hope to see that now that you've mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> that would that would be absolutely fantastic. I would I would absolutely yes. love that. Um, but yeah, in general, uh, besides that, I have to agree, it's not a movie I would recommend to anybody. Um, I'm looking on IMDb and I'm, I'm shocked that it has a 5.1 out of 10 rating. I mean, I know that's not good, but I feel that that's too good. <laughs> right, yeah, um, yeah, I still feel that that's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's not, 
it's just not a very strong movie. Like we said, even just independently of the book, you you don't get very good character development. The storyline is okay because the storyline does track fairly close to the book. I mean, for the most part, you know, different motivations and such. But uh, ultimately, you know, you have a group of people going to the Congo to try to find diamonds and they get attacked by these uh, gray gorillas that nobody knew existed. Okay, so as far as that goes, (laughs) it's true to the book. But other than that, definitely would not highly recommend the film. However, I would highly recommend the book. As you said, we do get a lot of science and technology. We get some geography lesson in there, and but it's not overbearing. Like I, I think he really was in his rhythm where he could include the the technical stuff without overwhelming with it. I never felt that any of those sections were too long. Right. Um, I think the the only sections that I came across that felt a little too long for me were the lengthy discussions of cannibalism. Those ones oh, I could probably yeah, have lived detailed. without. But then there's other parts where, you know, in the in the film, we were really cut short on the gorillas attacking at night, where in the book, you get the multiple nights of attacking and how they have mm-hmm. to change their defensive strategies around. They're running out of bullets and the other yeah. stuff that they use for it. So in the book, that's that's great. And I really feel you get like the end of this movie, you got gypped. By the time you meet the gray gorillas, it's really all just screwy. Yeah, the the worst characterization change between the book and film are these gray gorillas, for sure. Yeah. Because in the yeah. book, they are not these mindless, vicious, killing monsters that you get in the film. They are a <clears throat> species that is smart and resourceful. And yes, they are killing, but they're doing what they were taught to do. They're protecting the mine. They are protecting their home. They are protecting themselves. And they don't realize that, you know, maybe that seems a little overaggressive now that uh, the people who originally trained them are gone. But that that's what they're doing. And there's no mm-hmm. reason for them to, to believe otherwise. And they're not just vicious monsters. In the movie, they just they just wanted a monster. And you can tell just by looking at the, you know, you look at an image of what these supposed gorillas look like and... They're monsters, and that's not that's not how they were depicted in the book at all. No, they weren't, not at all. So stick with the book in this one, folks, for sure. <laughs> yep, I concur. Yeah, yeah. So thank you very much for listening to another episode of the Crichton Cast. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed. Please reach out and let us know. Uh, keep us posted on um, how you're enjoying our show and your hate or love for whatever it might be, Michael Crichton. Hey everybody, Eric here to tell you about a special promotion my charity Comicare is running. We are up for a challenge and we need your support. At Comicare we spend all year traveling to hospitals and collecting smiles from children and their families and leave comic books behind to keep the smiles going. Well now we want to see your smiles and we want to post them on our pages too. This July 20th through 23rd we will bring Arizona Tony Stark to the San Diego International Comic Con and take on one of our biggest challenges yet. We will have four days to collect as many pictures as we can of smiling supporters with Tony. How many can we collect? A hundred? Three hundred? Five hundred? We'll run for the 1,000 mark, but you never know. Will you pledge a couple of pennies for each photo we collect? Just think, if you pledge just two cents per picture and we collect a hundred photos, your donation will be two dollars. If we collect a thousand, twenty dollars. Either way, a small price to pay to be part of our continuing mission. We appreciate all your support in the past and we know you will enjoy being a part of this adventure. So please visit comicare.org slash 1000smiles. That's C-O-M-I-C-A-R-E dot org slash 1000smiles. Visit our page, click that pledge button, and throw us a couple of cents per smile. 